Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. Howdy folks and welcome back to the podcast. I want to begin this episode by talking a little bit about the schedule of how I put the podcast out. When I started, my intention was to make this a weekly podcast, and I have done that. Uh, up until I got a week with, or I got five weeks in one month. And so that kind of created a little snag in things because of the amount of space that I have available for uploading on Podbean, where I host the files. So I've kind of rethought it, and I've decided to think more in terms of four episodes per month generally put out on a weekly basis rather than trying to get 52 episodes out in a year. I'm going to think more along four episodes times 12 months would be 48, and that allows me a little more flexibilities as we get into the holidays here. As I mentioned in a previous podcast, I just recently went to Pennsylvania over Thanksgiving, and that kind of screwed up the schedule, and the five weeks in October sort of messed things up. Anyway, this is sort of uh, probably how the uh, Mayan calendar is, and maybe some of the thoughts that went into the creation of that, and the Gregorian and the Julian calendar. We have these calendar issues, so don't flip out if you don't see one, if if you're really expecting one to come out on a Wednesday morning and it doesn't just stop and think, well, did he already do four this month? Because we might be one of those situations where there are five, five week or five of a particular day, you know, five Wednesdays in a month, that type of thing. So anyway, uh, that's enough about the schedule. Now, the next thing I want to talk about and this is a shameless plug for my new product. I have just completed a new base, bluegrass base instruction course. And, you know, when I started, uh, first started with the base, it was back in the 1970s. And back then, there was very little information available if you wanted to play bluegrass bass. Basically, you had pictures of bass players. In you know, like if you bought a banjo book, there, there'd be a picture of a guy playing the bass, and you'd go watch performances and you'd see people playing the bass, or go to a bluegrass festival and hang around and watch them, or maybe ask them a question. And there, of course, were recordings and you could hear bass playing, but as far as method books, they didn't exist unless you were into classical or jazz, and there was lots of material for that, but it didn't really describe what was really going on in the bluegrass world. Yes, there's a lot of overlapping material. But anyway, I bought my first upright bass. It was a it, it was a 1949K model M1. I bought it probably about it was either 1978 or 79. And I got it. My logic back in those days was A, I wanted to be a banjo player. B, I wanted to be playing bluegrass and I didn't really care what I played. If I, if, if a bass would get me into a band, then a bass it would be. And that's ultimately how I ended up being a mandolin player for so many years. And I've talked about this in other podcasts, but anyway, I got my first upright bass around 78 and just started figuring it out 
for myself. And listening to the radio in those days was of no help because, you know, what was coming over the AM radio stations in those days was not bluegrass. So I had my bluegrass records that I was buying and just basically figuring it out on, on my own. And I remember my very first bass gig. I was pretty confident about the whole thing because I was learning banjo tunes and mandolin tunes and I, there were all these songs in these books and I learned them and I said, well, I can do that on the bass. And I listened to some records and I figured it out. So I had maybe, you know, two dozen tunes that I knew stuff like foggy mountain breakdown and will the circle be unbroken, that kind of stuff. And uh, a guy that I knew, Fred McIsaac, he was a, a bass player in Cedar Hill, but he also played with these guys called the Iron Mountain String Band. And Fred had a Cedar Hill gig and couldn't do this Iron Mountain String Band gig. And he, as he would say, he turned me on to the gig. He said, call Buddy Ashmore. And if you want to play bass, you know, if you think you can do it, they need a bass player. And I thought I could do it. So I show up and they had a little rehearsal and it was Buddy Ashmore on guitar and Norman Pascal. We used to call him Mr. Smooth. He was playing guitar also. And on mandolin, I'm pretty sure it was Tony Duck. There was a fiddler named Roy Alston, and the banjo player was a guy named Ron Hip. These guys had a band called Iron Mountain String Band, and Fred McIsaac was their bass player. Apparently, they played few enough gigs that Fred was able to play bass with them and be playing in Cedar Hill at the same time. Fred couldn't do the gig. I said I would do it. I went over there, and oh my God, I was so completely lost. Those two dozen tunes that I knew, me in the key of G or maybe in the key of A, and Buddy, he starts off first song, key of E. I mean, they're playing all this weird stuff. They're playing, uh, you know, Charlie Daniels songs and... uh, Stuff like Silver Wings, just just all this. It was all over the place. And original tunes and fiddle tunes I'd never heard of. I was completely lost. Well, I went and I did the gig with them. Probably because, they probably let me because they didn't have anybody else to turn to. And I, I the takeaway from that gig was I remember playing that little gig with them. And a lot of what I did, I knew I was lost. I I was playing along and just completely lost most of the time. Luckily, I did know some basic guitar chords, so I was able to watch Buddy's hands and kind of, you know, work my way through it. But uh, they never called me again to be (laughs) until many years later. uh, They used to call me a lot on mandolin, but they never called me to uh, play bass with him again. I'm sure I made a real mess of it. But the thing I took away with were Norman Pascal's looks. Mostly he wouldn't make eye contact with me, but every now and then he would just look at me and just give me this, give me the evil eye. And I would just shrink and I was like, what have I gotten myself into? Anyway, to make a long story short, I came out of that knowing that I had a lot to learn. And that was 38, 39 years ago. And you know what? I have learned a lot since then. And so I decided to write it down. And the result of that is my new bluegrass bass instruction course. And 
And, and I'm getting around to the topic for this episode. This, this relates. So I finished this book in the course of a week. I started out on a Monday with a stack of base tablature slash standard notation, some stuff that I had accumulated over the years teaching other people how to play the bass in private lessons. Huge stack of stuff. And I had an outline for the course. And I had about 13 pages written. And I also had a whole bunch of photographs that I had my wife take one day about three years ago. I said, can you come out here, get your camera and... She's got a really nice, really fancy Canon. Take take a picture of this. Take a picture of this. Take a, and I had all this stuff. And it's been rattling around in my head for a long, long time. So on Monday, I had about 13 pages written over the course of three or four years. And by Wednesday, I had a 93-page PDF ebook complete and online. And somebody has already bought one. And made, made a little website for it and all this stuff. But here's the thing. It might seem like I created this Bluegrass Base instruction course in less than a week. It's not true. That was 38 years of work. Cause, but before you can write a book, you have to understand what you're going to write. Anyway, so this leads me to the topic for this episode. This episode I call The Beaver Effect. You could subtitle it, The Power of Small Things Repeated Many Times. That's the beaver effect. So what I want you to do is, is picture a beaver sitting there next to a fairly large tree. Now let's, let's say like a 12-inch diameter maple tree. And there's the beaver. And he's kind of eyeballing that tree. That beaver gets it in his head that he is going to fell that tree. And he starts chomping on that tree. Little by little, he chomps, takes away little shavings of wood, little wood chips. He's just chomping on that tree and working his way around and around and around and around. Chomp, 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 chomp. Now I want you to picture yourself there and you have the same tree and all you have in your hand is a one inch chisel and a mallet and you're going to fell that tree. The beaver will just keep on and keep on and keep on and keep on until that tree comes down. And then there's all these wonderful buds and bark and all this stuff they can eat and limbs that can be the tree can be dismembered and hauled off to build a dam and all these things that beaver will take that tree down but you're sitting over there with your chisel and your mallet and you take a few chips at it and you decide this is never going to work and just imagine you cut down a 12 inch maple tree with a chisel and a mallet most people can't think like that the beaver is not bothered by all this. He just starts chomping and he keeps on chomping and he keeps on chomping and he keeps on chomping until that tree comes down. That is the beaver effect. I'll give you another example of the beaver effect. I had a, an upright piano. 
I, I was in the piano tuning business and repair business. And when we moved down here to South Georgia, I had this upright piano. I had about three pianos up there in the house that I need to move down here. And this piano, I had some guys helping me and we took it off the truck and just put it out under the awning of the barn. And it was just sitting out there. Well, one day my wife comes home and she'd been saying, we need to move that piano into the, you know, into the living room. I was like, I know, I know, I know. I need to get some help. Well, she comes home from work one day and the piano is sitting there in the living room. And she says, wow, how did you get the piano in here? I said, I moved it. And she said, by yourself? I said, yeah, I was kind of proud of it actually. And here's what happened. And I don't recommend you move pianos by yourself, but my logic was if I can move that piano an inch, I can move it a mile. And I went out there and I, I, you know, I knew something about moving pianos and I had a dolly and a ramp and all this kind of stuff, but coming up those steps and getting that thing in the house by myself was not something I looked forward to. But I thought to myself, if I can move this thing an inch, I can move it two inches. All I have to do is keep moving an inch and just keep on doing that. Eventually I'll have the piano in the living room. And I, that's what I did. It was not, it was not necessarily fun, but you had to stop thinking about it as I'm moving a piano. You just have to think about I'm moving the piano one inch and you got to have it nice and stable at that point. You know, you can't get yourself in a bind where you're halfway up the stairs and you know, it's about to tip over. You know, that kind of thing. You don't want to get in that situation. So moving a piano alone is an example of the beaver effect. Let me tell you another story about the beaver effect. One day, about 15 years ago, I was over at my brother-in-law's house. Their family had rented this old house in Roswell, Georgia. And we were just over there to see them. Maybe it was, I don't know, it might have been a holiday or something. We're sitting around upstairs and I'm looking at the house. This is a pretty neat old house. And I asked my brother-in-law, I said, does this house have a basement? Because I felt like the upstairs was, you know, a little small. And I was just curious where he, you know, if he had a workshop or whatever. He says, it does have a basement. I said, really? Huh? How about that? He's like, come here and let me show you. So we go outside in the backyard and there are these, the cellar door. The, the classic cellar door that looks like a ramp. Every house when I was a kid had one of these. To get to the basement, you went outside and there was this sloping double door thing and you opened the doors. Those double doors covered a staircase and you could go down the steps into the basement. That's the way most basement access points were created. Back in the old days. Well, anyway, there's one of these and I'm thinking it's just a regular old basement and he's going to show me the basement. So we go there and he opens the, the cellar door and we go downstairs and into the basement. He pulls the string and the light bulb comes on and sure enough, there's a basement, but I'm looking at this basement. It looks kind of strange. It looks almost more like a cave. I was expecting to see concrete block walls and or poured concrete or something but it sort of looks like stucco in there it's like there's 
everything is like curvy, like the floor way has a little wavering in it and the walls just kind of gently curve up. And I noticed that the basement is smaller than I expected. And as the walls curve upwards from the floor, they sort of curve over the top and right about at the foundation, they're about 18 inches away from, you know, the foundation of the house. Like, this is really strange. He says, well, guess what? The guy that owned this house, he didn't have a basement. And he decided one day that he wanted a basement. So every day when he would come home from work, he would get a bucket and a shovel. And he started digging a hole. And he dug out the staircase. And he had a staircase that went nowhere. And every day this man would go in the basement with a bucket and shovel dirt. He tunneled under his own house and he dug and he dug and he dug and he carried those buckets out and he spread them over the yard. He spread all that dirt out. <laughs> it reminds me of the Shawshank Redemption, if you remember that movie. Or any prison escape. The Great Escape is another good example movie where, you know, you tunnel out of San Quentin with a teaspoon. You know, it, this is the sort of mentality that I'm talking about here. This man dug this basement and I guess he was a little, con, you know, concerned that if he dug it too big, you know, the house might fall into the hole. So he, he kept the walls very, you know, he, he tapered himself away from where the foundation was. And then he got in there with cement and he just, you know, like plastered the whole thing up and by God, he had a basement. It took him 15 years to build that thing. Maybe he didn't, maybe his wife sat on the phone all night long, you know, talking to, you know, her mother or something. And he was just, maybe he just, and this is my guess, maybe he just wanted to get away from that. And it was more fun to go down the basement and just dig, 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 dig. And the man ended up with his own basement. Very unique. But you know, this beaver effect is, is, present in a lot of things. If, if you, if you take a, take a two by 10 and go out on your table saw and flick that baby on and run that two by 10 through that circular saw, it's the exact same effect. It's just happening a lot faster because if you look at that circular saw blade, it's just a bunch of little tiny teeth and each tooth takes a little tiny shaving off. And it's followed by another one, and 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 another one. I don't know how many chips are taken away by a circular saw blade when you cut a 2 by 10 I suppose if you took that pile of sawdust and took a pair of tweezers and a magnifying glass and counted every particle, you would be able to reverse engineer and calculate how many teeth are on that saw blade and how many RPMs it was running. I mean... Every tooth takes its one tiny shaving. And you might say, okay, this is all interesting, but what in the world does this have to do with bluegrass? Well, here's my theory. That every great, and by great I mean large or significant achievement, every great achievement happens as the result of many, many, many small actions which just get repeated over and over and over. 
it doesn't matter if it's music or building a pyramid. It's always, always the result of a lot of little small actions. If you want to become the greatest banjo player in the world, you know, maybe you do. You're, that's not going to poof into, ex, into existence. You're not just going to suddenly become that. You might be suddenly recognized as that, but you don't become that that way. It's done through lots of repetition of little, small, imperceptible things. It, and, and incidentally, this, this works in reverse too. the destruction of things as well as the creation of things is done. Oh, sure. You can put a stick of dynamite in a house and blow it to smithereens. There, there is sudden destruction, but there's also this little insidious, uh, it's like the termite eating away at your foundation until one day uh, the front room drops two inches or your porch falls off your house or your, all your hair falls out. You know, your hair is constantly being replaced and like you grow one hair and one falls out. But sooner or later, you two fall out and only one comes back, you know. And over the course of 15 years, you know, you end up bald as a cue ball. It's the exact same process. You don't end up bald as a cue ball because you woke up on a Tuesday morning and all your hair was laying on the pillow. It doesn't happen like that. Yeah, there are those rare instances. Same thing is true for gray hair, by the way. It just sort of creeps up on you. Well, you can use that principle to your advantage if you will think in terms of forget about making huge, massive achievements. Just make little improvements and just keep doing it and just keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. Okay. You also need to remember that the actions that you take, be it digging your own basement or learning to play an instrument or becoming a better singer or becoming a better songwriter or anything at all, all those little actions, every single one of them needs to be a positive action that moves you towards the goal. doesn't matter how small it is, but it needs to move you towards the goal and they need to be proven. So your actions need to be positive and proven because actions you could take a bunch of actions and just keep repeating them and they might not be getting you towards your goal. You know, if the guy digging his basement just started digging off in another direction, he might end up in the neighbor's yard, you know? So you need to periodically look at what you're doing and saying, is this, am I making any progress? And the best way to gauge that is to look back. Don't look forward. Don't look and say, Am I closer to the mountaintop? Look back and say, how far have I come? I've done a whole episode on that. Okay, let me give you one more example of this. One day, it was a Tuesday, and we used to have a little picking session at a pizza place called 15th Street Pizza in McDonough. And I called up a buddy of mine, a guy named Will Frazier. I just called him in the middle of the day, and I said, hey, you know, are you coming are you coming down to 15th street pizza tonight to pick? 
and his his phone was really noisy and he said, "Nah, I can't I can't come tonight. I'm I'm down here in South Georgia." I said, "What what you doing down in South Georgia?" He said, "I'm riding my bike to Florida." <laughs> I said, "What? It's it's a long way from McDonough, Georgia to Florida. I don't know exactly where he was going, but he was halfway there." This would take you multiple days. You're not going to do this in one day. But Will Frazier hopped on his bike and just started pedaling. Pedal, 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 pedal until he got to Florida. I mean, you know, go watch Forrest Gump. You can accomplish absolute miracles. What appear to be miracles just by making these little small things and just keep on doing it. But why can some people do it? This now we're getting to it. Why can some people do it and other people can't? You know, some people would have great trouble sitting down and writing a 500 word theme on a subject. And yet go to the library and look, there's war and peace. Somebody sat down and wrote that thing. Here's the decline and fall of the Roman Empire in two volumes by Gibbon. Just turn the pages takes a while. And you look, somebody not only wrote it, but had to do all the research in order to write it. It's kind of like my Bluegrass Base book. You go write your 93-page Bluegrass Base instruction course. You're going to spend a lot of time just, just typing it. You're going to spend a hundred times that amount of time figuring out what to write. You see what I'm getting at? But why can some people do it and some people can't? Well, I may not ever figure that out. You know, why can some banjo players play a pretty decent version of Old Home Place and another banjo player is in a bluegrass band, won bluegrass band of the year five times running at IBMA? Or one guy learns to play old Joe Clark on his mandolin. And another guy, he performs all over the world for 60 years, puts out over 150 records. He's a member of the Grand Ole Opry. He literally starts his own genre of music. Of course, I'm talking about Bill Monroe. How did Bill do that? I think it's the beaver effect. You get up every morning... And with this bulldog determination, you just keep chipping away at it. Every day, same old thing. It's the teaspoon. You're going to, by God, they won't keep me in this Turkish prison because I've got this ballpoint pen cap <laughs> they don't know about. And I'm chiseling away at the mortar every day, on and on and on. That's the difference between people that accomplish things and people that don't. Yeah, there's luck. You know, you can sit around and wait and hope things happen, but that's not how stuff happens. Stuff happens by the beaver effect. So spend some time thinking about that and get your pocket knife out and go cut down a large tree and you'll understand it. I would like to thank everybody who has been supporting the show and um, it, that helps a lot. One little, one little donation and, comes in and... I am re-energized. And also, I especially like to thank all of you who have visited my website, bradleylaird.com, full of 
free instructional material and also the products which I pedal to try to keep, um, you know, the beanie weenie on the table and, you know, bread and butter and gas in the car. Chicken feed, donkey feed. Hay for the donkeys. Now we're in winter. That's where the money goes. <laughs> so thank you to everyone who has made use of my instructional material. When you look at the website, as you, as you cruise around it, just re remember the beaver effect. Without the beaver effect, that website would not exist. And, of course, it's almost Christmas. And Jackson, as you know, helped create the Christmas songs for mandolin ebook and it's sitting there waiting for you. So don't be that guy who cannot play any Christmas songs on the mandolin. He's given it to you to help you. So, and he's trying to get enough money for a French horn. So be sure to check out the Christmas songs for mandolin ebook. If you have not already. And those of you who have purchased it, thank you very much. It means a lot to me and, you know, what I'm trying to teach Jackson. Anyway, everybody take care, and I'll talk to you in the next episode.